So while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city given holy idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotion, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that God, the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of, times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which all which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Today and tomorrow, I'd like to discuss with you the Greeks and our relation to them. Now, we've been discussing the Greeks in the junior apologetics class, and I make no apology for bringing up the Greeks in chapel, because we don't in chapel stir up our emotions only, and in class our intellect only. We want to be stirred up equally and for the same reason in class and in chapel. We want to be existentially stirred up because we believe what Paul believed. What Paul believed was that he had seen Jesus, the Son of God, whom he had persecuted. He had been a persecutor. He hated him. He wanted to 
destroy all of those that were of that way, but on the way to Damascus, Jesus himself appeared to him and said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me, these my people? After that, and Paul keeps coming back to it, as you know, he is certain that Jesus rose from the dead and that he ascended into heaven. In other words, Paul's message to the Gentiles, and notably to the Greeks who represent the Gentiles, perhaps best in their intellectual attainment, he is sure that they were creature worshippers and not creator worshippers, and that they must repent from being this creature worshippers and become creator worshippers, and that they won't repent of themselves, they never will change their minds if they have to find the way this better way, this only way for themselves with their method of searching. God has revealed himself, he says, what you ignorantly search for in blindness of your heart and in your unbelief, your hatred of God, I tell to you in the name of God who has spoken to me in Christ, and I know of, which I, of what I speak. There is through everything that Paul says this note of certainty. When he dies, he's about to die, he says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That day was the judgment day. And he wasn't afraid of its coming. And he wasn't afraid to die. And he was not afraid to die because Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and he had risen from the dead for his justification. He was no longer under the wrath of God. He was sure of this. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, the last verse, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know, not as you think, as you probably, as it's probably true from you, and with very great probability, greater probability than unbelief, he says nothing of the sort, always speaks in terms of knowing and of knowing with certainty. Now that's, of course, obviously what we ought also to do. Now we're not those among those that have had Christ speak to us directly from heaven, but we have his word that is given to us here in the scriptures. We receive the scriptures as being as surely and truly directly the word of God as Paul was that Christ had spoken to him from glory. Now this is very difficult for us because we now seem to be in the eyes of people so cocky what do you know that we don't know and modern science and every school of modern philosophy tells us that we know nothing about metaphysics if anything is out today it's metaphysics which means anything that is beyond the visible beyond what Kant called the phenomenal <clears throat> every school of philosophy every school of science today starts with the problem why is anything rather than nothing that is to say, you Christians ought to realize if you're humble, if you pretend to be humble instead of cocky, that you, neither you nor we know anything. Nobody knows anything. That's the only way to recognize your humility, that you just start out by saying, nobody knows. Now, don't you see, we're not ready to do that because we do know. We do not know instead of their not knowing because we have thought out by ourselves or invented or discovered or philosophically established or scientifically established anything that they with good minds, better minds than we have oftentimes, have not established, not at all, but because we believe 
and have accepted on the authority of Christ his own say-so. Now that means, of course, that we have to have absolute humility. What have ye, says the apostle, that ye have not received? Are you going to put yourself above other human beings in the sense that you claim that you can prove in the way that he wants to have things proved that your position is true and his is not true or that yours is more likely true than his is not likely true? You don't do anything of the sort, he says. You simply accept on authority what he has told you. Now, that was the case in paradise, as we discussed in the junior apologetics. God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of that forbidden tree. Don't eat that persimmon, which I have established was a persimmon, but it wasn't an apple. Now, don't eat of that, because if you eat of that, you will surely die. Now, Satan came along to Eve and said, now, look, that's God's hypothesis. My hypothesis is that you'll go the other way. You'll go up. Now, you stand on your hind legs, and you, if you're autonomous, and you ought to be, you ought to be a person that decides for yourself and not as a grown-up individual and mature. You've come to maturity. You must now establish for yourself what is true and not listen to some authority above you. Well, Eve listened, and the consequence was, of course, that she rejected God, who was alone in a position to know. I asked one of these British boys that are invading us to go and examine everything he wants on the campus here and find gold if he can, and then try to make off with it to Great Britain. He will be persecuted, I'm sure, and we shall trace him down in Great Britain if necessary, and we shall haul him before a tribunal over here. In other words, he hasn't any business unless we give him permission to dig for gold. Now, nobody here has known enough to dig for gold and has found any, but suppose he is bright enough and he finds gold. He still owes it to this seminary to report that he has discovered gold and the seminary owns the gold. This world belongs to God, says Paul. He has created it. You are now worshiping something, not the creator, not the owner, and the owner will punish you for his neglect of him. Well, now, therefore, we have to have humility and boldness. You may think that I'm emphasizing the boldness. I'm not. I'm, first of all, anxious about humility, because you can't be bold without first being humble, truly bold, because without being humble first, humble enough to receive and accept on Christ's own say-so what he says, then you're never humble. What have you that you have not received by grace? By grace are you saved, by grace ye live alone. But then having received it, other people need to be saved by grace, and they need to be humbled from their bold opposition, which the false boldness, which is trust in man. Now that ought to permeate all our thinking, all our study of the scriptures, all our devotion. Humble boldness will unify our personality, will give us courage to say what Paul said when we die pretty soon, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded, I am sure, that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Shall we pray? The first chapter, beginning with the 18th verse, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. 
Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, to please God through the foolishness of preaching, to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised, and hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to not things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto, unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorious, let him glory in the Lord. Yesterday I read to you from Acts the 17th chapter the Areopagus address and there are three main points in that address and Paul was getting the Greeks, requiring them, beseeching them that they change their point of view radically and believe the exact opposite from what all of them have all the time believed up to this time, namely on the question of creation. They had believed, they had assumed, as you know, Thales and Anaximander and Eximenes and the rest of the philosophers and the tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, before them, and the idolaters, the idol worshippers before that, had all of them believed that man is what he is, in that he is participant of, in deity. He is divine in his essence especially in his intellect. His intellect is divine. Now, Paul says, on this question of origins, you, to whom I have preached this gospel, and he addresses them in the latter part of this 15th chapter, you, my friends, you as a group, have come to believe by my preaching in the name of Christ the exact opposite of what you have formerly believed and what the people around you believe all of them in their educational institutions, whatever school of philosophy they may belong to, they believe that the world's just there, it hasn't been created, man is just there, but he somehow, for some unknown reason, belongs nevertheless to the divine, such divine as there is. Now then, on the second point was, of course, the resurrection. He preached to them Christ in the resurrection. Now you group you, my friends, have learned to believe the exact opposite of what every one of all the schools of all the Greeks has believed up to this moment and what you believe up to this moment that I came to you with the gospel of the death, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Now that crucifixion, the cross of Christ, is to all of the Jews foolishness and to the, uh, is a scandal and to the Greeks it is foolishness. Well, because the Greeks and the Jews, the Pharisees, had learned to believe exactly what the Greeks believed, that there is one God 
one principle it is, and they have transformed the teachings of Moses to fit in with that Greek philosophy in order to do what their own corrupt moral self-consciousness, as they thought of it as wonderful and growing, asked them to do. Now then, to you Jews and Greeks, where are the wise, where are the scribes of the, of the Jews? I challenge you, in the name of Christ, whom you have learned to believe, that you tell this thing to others about the origins of things and about the center of history, that it is the re exact reverse of what you have till now believed. And then in the third place, he asks them, that tells them that the resurrection is given as evidence of the coming judgment. Now, that's the, one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament to me. How can the resurrection, uh, granted it took place over there in Galilee and near Jerusalem, how could that be an evidence to all men, says Paul, to all men everywhere over the whole universe of the coming of the judgment and that this man who thus was crucified and rose again from the dead would be the judge of all mankind. Yet he says, you have believed this on the authority of Christ and through my preaching. And now, my fellow brethren, he says, now that you have, on a, have a new protology, a new center of philosophy, of history, and a new center of eschatology, the totality view you have learned to reject that which the Greeks had taught you and you had believed being Greek, now you have learned to have a totality view totally different of every major point and therefore every subordinate point involved in these major points. Now then, it is up to you, he says, to preach this. Now they were a small group and little group and not too many of them had education that amounted to anything. Not many mighty, not many noble of you are called, but humble people. And through true humility, you have received it. You were not philosophers. You haven't thought this out because you were smarter or because you had deeper insight than Plato or Aristotle. But you have been given this by grace. But now that you have received it, my beloved brethren, not good friends and neighbors and like so many preachers, vaporize on Sunday morning. Isn't it nice you folk are all here and you ought to belong to the ladies' aid if you don't? But all of you, my fellow believers, my fellow resurrection believers, my fellow creation believers, my fellow believers in the coming judgment, and he that he who was crucified and rose again will be the judge, my fellow believers. Undertake this task. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now it was easy to be unsteadfast to doubt this thing because they had just come out of that exact opposite background and now to be so certain that they could be steadfast and immovable. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't move and be active. It means the reverse. It means that they should follow a straight course just like a, a, just like a great locomotive follows along this track to the Grand Central Station in New York. Well, now that's how he wants us, he says, to proclaim to the Greeks to all unbelievers, a new protology, a new eschatology centering all around Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection in history. Now, that he tells them, inasmuch as you know that your faith, your work is not in vain in the Lord. I said yesterday that the question, the matter of certainty and of conviction 
is of basic importance for the preaching of the gospel. Now, we must know that your work, this work that we're doing, is not in vain in the Lord. It looks as though it might be in vain. Who are we, little tiny bit of group of insignificant folks as over against Harvard and Yale and Chicago and the great institutions of learning in this land, science and philosophy, existentialism, pragmatism, and the rest of them. He has given unto us simple people, redeemed by grace, taken out of the mass of perdition, set upon a rock, having given them given the vision of the living God through Jesus Christ to be sent. He has said, be in as much as you know. That's not a subjective position merely, that you have just made up your mind, the primacy of the practical intellect, you're going to know and be certain of something of which you do not intellectually know anything. But you know that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. You can walk down the street with Plato, Aristotle, down Kant, Hegel, and the rest, down, 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 up to the greatest irrationalist thought in our time, and you can point out to them that I'm there with them, work with them, stand with them, go with them, and in the circle, as they swim around in the abyss of the unrelated, you swim with them. And after about a million years, you say, aren't you getting tired? It's about time you were re-examining yourself and see that this is folly. Can't you see you don't even know yourself and who you are and what you are and where you're going, where you've come from and what it means? You know nothing, not only that, but you know at bottom that you're under the wrath of God for this. And that's what I come, we come now to tell him to proclaim unto you in the name of Christ. And that, my friends, is our task by the grace of God at this place. Let's pray. Our, our God, our Father in heaven, we rejoice to know that thou hast translated us from darkness unto light, that thou hast sent forth thine only begotten Son into this world, that he might die for our sins, that he rose for our justification, that he ascended into glory to prepare a home for his own, or else he would have told us so. And we know these things, we believe them, we are certain of them, for by the testimony of thy Spirit, thou hast testified that we are thy children, that we are the heirs of God and the joint heirs with Christ if of eternal life. If so be that for his sake we suffer with him, we shall be also glorified together. May we be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I believe, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And may we testify in no uncertain voice with deep humility, because thou hast saved us out of this mass of perdition. We were no better than our others. We are not of ourselves any better. But thou hast redeemed us, and thou hast given us this task to perform, this glorious message to proclaim of Christ and the resurrection. How much worse things are than any philosopher or wise man ever thought of them as being. They're not merely in a mess. They are under the wrath of God. We must tell them so. But how much better than any man has ever thought it possible to be. That which has not entered into the heart of man, thou hast revealed unto us in Christ. And by the Spirit we have believed and accepted. Great joy is ours in him who died for us and rose again and the certainty of redemption for ourselves and salvation we have by the testimony of his Spirit. Make us joyful in the Lord our God as we labor day by day 
and as we at this place individually and together seek to prepare ourselves to do what thou dost tell us to do, challenge the wisdom of this world, because it has been made foolishness with God, and proclaim him who is given unto us as wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and full redemption. For Jesus our Savior's sake. Amen.